Okay, church, here, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Now, today, the section that we're going to cover is going to begin there in verse 25. If you have your Bible open, it's going to be Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. And it's going to bleed into chapter 5 all the way down to verse 2. You're going to have to ignore that chapter break in your Bible this morning because it's not very helpful here. So that's going to be our section this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 25, and then we're going to work our way down to chapter 5, verse 2. But um, in order to get there, let me recap just very, very briefly what we went over last week when Manny preached, right? So in the previous section that we covered when Manny preached last time, right, Paul had just uh, done something for us. He had contrasted two ways of living, two ways of life for us, the old with the new. And he tells us, we are to no longer walk in that old way of life as unbelievers do, right? Because that was our former way of life. He puts it this way. He says, put off your old self, meaning your old life, your old habits, your old way of doing things. And instead, you are called to put on the new self, or you are to walk in the newness of life that you have in Christ. But now, as Manny left us off on that beautiful cliffhanger last week, how do we do that, right? Because that's the question that arises. All right, Paul, we are to walk in the new self, this new man, this new way of life. How do we walk in the new life we have in Christ? How do we put on the new self? What does this look like for us? And so here we are. This brings us to our section this morning here, beginning in chapter 4, verse 25. This section, Paul is going to look his argument for how we do that. How do we live the new life in Christ? Well, Paul's going to lay that out for us here in this next section. Now, Paul's going to do this here in a very interesting way. Usually how Paul structures his things is he gives you the main idea, and then below his main idea, he offers you a bunch of support for his main idea, and that's how we typically think in our own minds. However, Paul does not do that in this section. Instead, he states his main point at the end of this section and gives his examples first. So rather than putting his main point right there at the beginning and then stating all of his examples, Paul is going to put all of his examples first on how we live this new life, but then he's going to give his central command there right at the end. So his main point is going to be verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. So I want you to look at this here really quick. I know I had you guys open up your Bibles here. I want you to look at this end real quick because this is going to be Paul's central commandment to you in this text. So look there, beginning verse 1. Therefore, here's the command, be imitators of God as beloved children. How? And walk in love. If Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice. So this is going to be Paul's main point. It's going to be the whole main point of the sermon. Everything that we talk about is going to build up to this. Since you guys have been remade new in Christ, becoming new creations, putting off the old self and putting on the new self, you are to imitate God by walking in love walked in love. That's the central commandment to you. Imitate God and walk in love as Christ walked in love. This is Paul's central point here. This is a central commandment. So 
we need to deal with this here today and flesh this out. But before we do that, I want to revisit the structure a little bit because this can be kind of confusing as, as, as you read it and you look over it and even as you may hear it preach. So I want to offer some clarity and some structure in your mind so that as we work our way through this text, it's a little bit easier to track. I'll be honest with you, even for me reading over this, it's hard to track Paul here in this section. So before we begin to actually look at how we are to walk in love, let's lay out this structure here again. Because as I already stated, right, the main point of the text is not here at the beginning. Right? It's at the end of our section here today in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I want to read this whole section so we can hear it all in one sitting. And then I want to give you guys just a few things to keep in mind as far as the context of this passage. So hopefully we have our bearings straight and we can really kind of fall, follow uh, Paul's thought process here. So let's read this text together. Let's, let's look at it. And then I'll give you guys a few things. So look with me here, right here in uh, verse 25. Paul in verse 25, he says this. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen. So a few things here to note as we look at this rather long section of text. First is, like I've stated already, I want you guys to really get this. The main point comes at the end of this section. Paul's main point and main commandment is to imitate God and walk in love. And this commandment actually caps off this section here, this larger section that we see in Ephesians 4 going into chapter 5. If you guys look back at Ephesians 4, 17, Paul says, Now this is to say, testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And then this central commandment that comes at the, at the beginning of chapter 5, what does Paul reiterate again? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. So, Paul wants us to not walk a certain way and now walk a, an, another way. And so, this, the, the, these two ends kind of bookmark our section here and, and show us that this is one continued thought for Paul. You've thrown off the old life and now he's going to tell you how to walk in the new life. So, there's our first one. So, second... I want you to notice that connecting word there in chapter 5, right, right there at the beginning, therefore. Paul is doing what here with that word? He's concluding his thoughts here with this phrase. Now, the question becomes, 
what was Paul discussing before he gives this concluding thought, this, this final main commandment here in chapter 5? Well, all you got to do is just look a few verses before it, right? And you can see that Paul was explaining, was expanding what it looks like to imitate God and therefore walk in love. That's what Paul's doing before he gets there at the beginning of chapter 5. And so this means then, if we want to obey Paul's central commandment to imitate God by walking in love, then we just need to look at the previous verses. He's going to tell us how we do it, right? Paul's central commandment is going to be fleshed out then by verses, uh, or the verses in chapter 4, 25 through 32, which then means that those exhortations that we heard in that section are going to be what Paul has in mind for how we fulfill the main commandment to imitate God and to walk in love. So as we look at these exhortations, and brethren, I hope it's going to be clear uh, as we read them and as you've heard them, that these all deal with a believer's character and their actions, how they end up walking both outwardly and inwardly. But if you guys heard all those exhortations, and as you're reading them, you kind of notice that these exhortations don't have a particular, there's not a particular order or structure going on. You notice that in verse 25, Paul just begins right there just flying, like he just starts giving out commands. He's kind of flying off the handle with them, and he states that imperative there that uh, in regards to a Christian's speech, right? That's what he says right there in 25. Let each one of you speak the truth in love, right? He, so he starts there with, uh, with speech, but then as he moves along, he just bounces around between thoughts and then actions and then back to words and then an action and then back to, you know, thought. He can just do that kind of thing without really creating any particular structure or reasoning for why he does that. However, I don't think that that means there's, there's no way for us to kind of piece this together. I think these commandments are intended and chosen by Paul to address the whole life of the believer, which is why Paul can jump around from your speech to your thoughts to your actions. Paul's not trying to give you an order to follow. Paul is trying to show you, brethren, listen, he wants you to see you're remade new in the image of God, then this means that Christ's way of life, his walk is going to be your walk, is going to cover your entire life. All of it. It's going to touch every single aspect of it, right? To walk as Christ's walk does not mean that Christ just changes up or reforms a few of your actions or just a few of your thoughts, brethren. Christ reforms all of your life. He touches every aspect of your life. And so Christ wants all of our thoughts. He wants all of our words. He wants all of our deeds. And so with that kind of background in and in, in, in thinking about uh, that in, in, in light of that, that kind of structure, I think that's how we can kind of approach this text then, right? So instead of trying to find some straightforward way through this text, I think we can approach the text in this way. So while we will work through all these verses for the most part, it's not going to be a A, B, C, D order, 25, 26, 27, 28. Instead... I want to expand on the main commandment there in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, by grouping these exhortations that we find here in verses 25 through 32 under three main headings to kind of give us some structure. So I want to group these exhortations like this. 
Paul wants us to imitate God and walk in love in these three categories. Thought, word, and deed. Right? So that's how we're going to flesh out this text here today. Paul wants you to imitate God in Christ by walking in love in three categories that touch every area of your life. Thought, word, and deed. And in doing so, brethren, we're going to learn then how to fulfill that main commandment. Imitating God, walking in love, and it's going to be through these exhortations that cover these three broad areas of our life. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. And hopefully in doing so, brethren, we fulfill that main command. That we imitate God. We walk in love. So let's look at our first main idea here. Let's deal with thought, our thoughts. So this first group of exhortations, I want to deal with a few texts in here where Paul really hones in on our thoughts. And so I want us to begin by thinking beyond what we, what we normally think of when we think of thoughts, right? Because we usually tend to think of thoughts as just like abstract ideas or propositions that we keep in our minds, right? And we just keep it there as information. But I want you to consider this because I think this is an important biblical aspect of thinking about thoughts is that thoughts are more than just propositions in your mind. The, the, the thoughts are actually something that the Bible says come from your heart, right? That thoughts stem out of your heart. So I want you to hear this. This is Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. Listen to Jesus' words. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. Now listen. For out of the heart comes, what's he going to say? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. So I want you to notice that. Jesus says, Thoughts are not just things, neutral things floating around in people's minds. Thoughts are actually things that proceed out of people's hearts. And if you have evil thoughts, obviously then it's flowing out of an evil heart. And this is one thing then, brethren, that thoughts do for us. Thoughts inform you on the condition of your heart, right? So it acts like a sign for you. What I think tells me who I am, right? Our thoughts, brethren, tell us how well our hearts are doing, whether we are in a spiritually good condition or whether we're in a spiritually bad condition. And Jesus affirms this right here. Jesus affirms this and teaches us this, that the thoughts display for everybody the condition of the heart. And brethren, because they come from your inward being. That's what your heart is. Your deepest part of yourself, or who you are, is where your thoughts flow from. And they either flow from good, or they flow from evil, right? But the Bible actually says even more than this. Not only, does the, not only do thoughts display who you are, the Bible also shows us that one's thoughts can also change, and thoughts can influence our hearts. Listen to these two passages. This is Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace, right? So here's the state of this person's being, his heart, right? You keep him in what? Perfect peace. Perfect inward peace. How? How does he keep him in perfect peace? 
whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So how does the person stayed in perfect peace? His mind is stayed on the Lord, right? His thoughts, he's thinking about God. His thoughts are thinking true things about God, trusting God. And therefore, how's his heart? Stayed in perfect peace. Philippians chapter 4 verse 7 says something very similar. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will do what? Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So notice once again this, this, this vital connection. Thoughts not only display your heart, the condition of it, thoughts can also change the condition of your heart. They can influence the condition of your heart. They can keep your heart, so to speak, right? They can keep it for good or they can end up keeping it for evil. And so, brother, notice with those verses, our thoughts, if they are stayed upon God, have the ability to produce a change within our hearts. You think about how important your thoughts are then. Your thoughts have an ability, brethren, to change and direct the course of your heart. Your mind, your thoughts, when stayed upon God, have the ability to direct the course of your heart. And this is very important for us to remember. Because thoughts display, brethren, they indicate the condition of our heart. But brethren, they also, too, direct one's heart in a particular direction. So, now when you hear these exhortations, I want you to have that background in mind. Because our first exhortation, as it deals with our thoughts, comes here in Ephesians 4, 26. Look there with me. Ephesians 4, verse 26. Here's what Paul says. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here's, here's the basic commandment, right? Here's our first exhortation as it relates to our thoughts. Be angry and do not sin with the warning that comes right there at the end that we would not let the sun go down on our anger and therefore what? Give opportunity for the devil. Now listen, this is a very interesting exhortation, right? Very interesting because uh, you, it doesn't seem like the thing that Paul would say. But on the surface, right, what does it state, brethren? What does this exhortation state? It states that anger, right, which is, well, what is anger? I know you're thinking, well, I thought we are talking about thoughts. Are you talking about anger? Well, 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 brethren, what is anger? It's an emotion stirred up by inward thoughts, right? It's displaying your heart, your mind, your soul, your inner being. And yet here, Paul says... Be angry, but with only one caveat. What's the caveat? That you do not sin, right? But how can this be, right? How can Paul give such a commandment here? Because if you guys keep your finger there in 26, just go down to verse 31, and what does Paul say there? Well, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. So how can we understand this exhortation? And, and how do we kind of square it then with this prohibition towards anger that comes later in 31? Well, I, I think, brethren, the best way to understand it is to say that what Paul is exhorting us in to be angry and yet we don't sin is that we would understand this anger to be a, a, a type of anger or a kind of anger that the Bible allows and, and, and says is permissible for the godly. And I want you to turn here to Psalm 4 so you can kind of really get this sense 
of what I'm saying so you don't think I'm blowing smoke with this kind of thing. So turn there to Psalm 4. I want you, to, you need to see this. You need to hear this one. Psalm 4. Because I think the way we can understand this exhortation in Ephesians is that there is a type of anger that is allowed and permissible for the Christian. So let's look here at this psalm in Psalm 4. I want you to pay attention to this. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now here's our main text right here. This might sound familiar. David says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It's rather noticed in right there. This psalm is the psalm that Paul is quoting from. And Paul is directly quoting here from Psalm chapter 4. I mean, it's a verbatim quote. It's identical words. Be angry and do not sin. Brethren, this, this context here for, for the psalm is set that David is in the midst of false charges that are being made against him, right? And David has this, what I would call, righteous anger about these false accusations because his name is being slandered. This is the kind of anger that David has, this righteous anger. And brethren, here is the kicker. What David is doing in this righteous anger is he's actually imitating God here, right? If you go over to the next psalm in Psalm 5, Psalm 5 actually tells us something about God's own character. And God there is described as not delighting in wickedness and what? Hates evildoers, right? So David is is seeing something about the character of God and David himself is imitating it. Just as God hates wickedness and evildoers, so too David hates false accusations and injustice that come from evil people. David despises these things as well. And so, brethren, as we think about this, and then we think about the text there in Ephesians that it's quoting from, David's anger, and thus the exhortation, be angry, here is not a false or a wrong exhortation. It is not a wrong kind of anger to have. However, and I want to clarify this all day long, even though this anger here is permissible, right? The command is a real command. Notice the command that Paul gives, as he quotes, is not simply be angry, period. That's not Paul's command. It's rather, be angry and do not sin. (laughs) Why? Why does Paul pull this from here to exhort us in that, but give that caveat? Well, brethren, listen, it's because of this. What often flows out of anger, even righteous anger, brethren, even righteous anger as you look upon wickedness and evil is sin. What often flows out of anger, brethren, is often sin. And brethren, notice here that when Paul gives this qualification as he pulls it from Psalm 4, this qualification comes in a context where David actually has the right to be angry. He is the anointed king whose name is being slandered. He has the right to be 
angry at this wickedness and this evil, and yet David himself is told, do not sin in his anger. Why, brother? Because it is so easy to fall into sin when one is angry, even when one is righteously angry. So listen, David is very quick then to remind us And Paul is quick to remind us that though there may be time for righteous anger towards evil and wickedness, and I am not discounting that, right? We read all the Psalms in this church. But even though there might be a time for that, brethren, anger at the end of the day, when the sun is going down, it's got to be put away. That's what he says. Anger must be dealt with. And brethren, if you think about it, if it's got to go down at the end of the day, you got to deal with it quickly. You got to deal with it swiftly. You can't let that anger linger because if you do, brethren, anger will lead and tends to lead towards greater evil. And you think about those words that James says. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Anger's got to be put away, brethren. And so how, how, how do we fulfill this exhortation then to be angry and yet do not sin? Well, I think the way that we are to deal with it here, brethren, is that when one is righteously angry, he is then to take that anger and put it away by entrusting himself to the Lord and for the Lord to act on his behalf. Brethren, that's how you put it away. You have to entrust yourself to the Lord and ask the Lord to act upon your behalf. You think of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. This was spoken of about Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Brethren, if we entrust ourselves to the Lord in the midst of righteous anger, Brethren, He will. He says, He will act for us because He is the judge who judges justly. And brethren, by doing so, we will save ourselves from sin and thereby give no opportunity for the devil, no open window for the devil to come in and triumph over us. And so our, our, our next group right here, words, words. So we think about imitating and walking in love. We have several exhortations here about words in this big section. The first one that I want to deal with comes right at the beginning of this text that we have before us there in verse 25. So look with me at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. wants to deal with our words, right? And the commandment here, once again, a very simple commandment. We are to put off falsehood, just as we put off our old life. And then, how we live this new life then, is we are to use our words in our speech now in a very different way. And the Bible here makes very clear how we used our words before we were Christians, so that we could see 
Now, how should we use our words, right? You think of the kind of words that were in your mouth before you were saved. You think about this text here in Romans 3, 13 to 14. And this one, just listen to it, brethren, because you need to remember the kind of words that were in your mouth before God saved you. This is the Bible's description of you before Christ. There, or your, your throat was an open grave. Your tongue was used to deceive. The venom of asps was under your lips, and your mouth was full of curses and bitterness. Brethren, this is why Paul can say right here, put off falsehood and speak the truth, because you are members of one another. Brethren, he is concerned rightly about our speech, because he knows that what used to characterize us in the old life was nothing but malice and hate, and what was the result of our speech before Christ? Death. Your throat is an open grave. It, you know what it invites? Because the tongue invites something. Well, your tongue before Christ invited death. And so this means, brethren, why Paul is so centrally concerned with speech. It's because, brethren, your speech really does have the power to give life or to give death to others. And brethren, as new creations, he wants us to understand this to the absolute core of your being. Words have the ability to bring life and the ability to bring death. And this is serious. This is how you are to imitate God and walk in love. And brethren, do you understand as you read the Bible itself how serious God takes your words? I mean, can you guys think of a place where God speaks so seriously about words that issue from your mouth. Can you guys think of a passage in the Bible where God takes your words so seriously? Yes. I mean, yes, idle, careless. But okay, we got it right at the first go. I'm happy about that. That's great. So yes. Let's listen. So listen to this. This is Matthew chapter 12, 26 to 27. Listen to what Jesus says. How serious does God take our words? Well, listen to what he says. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for what? Every careless word they speak or idle word. On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now listen to this. This statement is absolutely wild. You think justified by faith alone? Well, yes. But listen to what Jesus' words are. Just erase your mind of that for a second. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. <laughs> what a stark reality of how serious God takes our speech, our words. Brethren, it has the ability to justify someone and it has the ability to condemn someone. And we're not talking about a, a, a little offense or a little reward. We're talking about life and death, eternal life or eternal hell. Your words have the ability to issue life or to issue death. And Paul, therefore, he wants you to say, you got to throw off that falsehood, that stuff that used to be in your mouth, and you need to speak the truth. But notice why Paul gives this commandment because he gives us a reason there. If you look back in 26, what does he say? He says, for we are members of one another. The question is, members of what? 
What are we all members of? Well, brethren, we are all, as we've read earlier in Ephesians, as we've heard earlier in Ephesians, we are all members of the body of Christ. We have been joined, right, to this great spiritual head, that head being Christ. And Paul's reminding you that as Christians, we have been joined to Christ into his body, which has what? Many members, many people in it. And so, brethren, listen, you may have come to Christ as an individual, but you don't remain isolated as an individual in Christ, right? You may come as an individual, and most people do, but as you come to Christ, you now come to a body full of members. And this right here is at the heart of this commandment. This is what Paul thinks it should be the motivating factor for you to, 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 to watch out for your speech and to speak the truth because you are members of one another. So, brethren, you are to be a people then who speak the truth in love because you have now been joined to Christ in this great body of His. And so church, you need to think then, you have an obligation and responsibility to be truthful to one another because we are all members of each other. We are all members of this same body. Therefore, we ought to speak the truth for the good and the benefit of one another. This, this is Paul's point as he, uh, as he says on later, and this is our second exhortation as it, deal with, as it deals with our words. I want you to look at verse 29. Here Paul gives another exhortation in light of this, and it's connected to this idea already. So look here in verse 29. Listen to what he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So brethren, falsehood, corrupting talk, be put away because your words are actually tools. <laughs> your words are tools that can be used for the building up of other people, for the building up of the body. And this is why Paul's central concern right here is in our speech. It has that ability to do life and that ability to do death. And it also, brethren, is the tool by which God builds up His church. And so, brethren, listen, our words then need to be governed by the thing that Paul tells us to speak, truth. Our words need to be governed by truth. For what purpose? That they would build up the Christian, that they would build up up the body, and, and, and thereby do what? Mature the body, to mature the Christian. This, this, this second exhortation here on our words in verse 29, I think then, gives us here a few principles we can think of in regards to truth and building up the body and using our words for the good of others. So first, as I've already stated, we are to speak the truth, right? We are to be people of truth. And, and listen, this may seem oversimplified, but I don't want to miss this one because we, we can often hear this commandment to speak the truth and we can think about it wrongly, right? Um, there, 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 are, uh, there, there are people who once they get saved and, and come to know the truth, they, they are so gung-ho on speaking the truth at all times because they recognize, I used to live in falsehood and now I've been brought to the truth, right? That... That they just start speaking truth anywhere and everywhere, whenever they feel it, however they feel it, right? And so we need to, we need, we need to recognize first that right, speaking the truth needs to be qualified here 
in this text because we don't want to oversimplify these things, right? We don't want to just start letting everything that we think of, whether it be true or, or, or somewhat true about somebody or something, to just start issuing forth from our minds. We need, brethren, if we are to obey this commandment, we are to speak the truth and love for the what? The building up of people. And so when we speak the truth and love, if we oversimplify, brethren, we're going to start overlooking the fact that we're speaking the truth to people, right? And so we don't want to overlook this. We don't want to have no regard for the person that we're speaking to. We don't want to have any disregard for the situation or for the good of the other person, brethren. We want to simply give the truth because we seek to build up the person rather than just seeking to be right. Because that's not what Paul envisions here. Now, it is important, though, that we do know the truth, right? You don't have the ability to build up the church if you don't know the truth, right? You can't be of any benefit to your brother or your sister here in this church if you don't know the truth. And brethren, this means what? We need to know our Bibles, right? If we're people who are saved by the truth, people who have come to know the truth, then we need to be people of the truth. We need to know it. We, we, we need to feel it. We need to be able to tell people the truth. And so, brethren, we need people whose minds and their hearts are steeped then in the Bible so that we actually know the truth. And yet, brethren, as, as, as we think then about knowing the truth and delivering the truth, we want to think of a few I guess you'd call these principles for how to understand, okay, if I'm going to deliver the truth to somebody, how's the best way that I can do it so that it's further building up and further good and not just me wanting to, to speak the truth out just because I want to seek the truth? Well, I think there's a couple of things we can think of. And here's the first thing. Brethren, as you think about speaking the truth for the building up of other people, you want your speech to fit the occasion, Right? You want what you have to say to this person to fit the occasion. So when we speak to one another, we want to see, okay, is this the right, is this the right time and the place and the, and the opportunity to say this kind of thing? You need to start asking yourself, am I going to need to say this at this particular moment? Is this the most helpful thing to say right here in the moment to this person, right? And, and brethren, the primary reason for asking this is to make sure that if what you are going to say to somebody that thing that's going to be said is received by them well, right? That is received favorably by the person that you're speaking to. Now listen, what I'm not saying by that is you only speak things to people that they want to hear. That's not what I'm saying at all. Brethren, they're, they're, often it happens where you're going to have to say a word to someone that they may not want to hear. And sometimes it's a hard word to hear. But even if it is a hard word to hear, brethren, you should desire to say it to them in a way that they would receive it favorably, right? Because what are we trying to do? Be right? Or to build up the person, to win the person, to let our words be grace given to that person. And so, brethren, one way you can attempt this is just by finding the proper time and the place to speak the truth in love, right? Because the goal for you, brethren, is to always win your brother, right? It's further good. It's further building up. It's for grace to be given to them. So we want to, as best we can, find the proper time and place to speak the truth to each other so that we can benefit that person, not hinder them or not be right in our own eyes. And second, brethren, you want to ask this second question, is what I'm saying proper for the situation, right? 
So the first one we're asking, okay, is this the right moment to say this, right? Is this a favorable time for me to say this? Well, the other one is, is what I'm saying proper for the situation, right? Imagine this example, right? A father, he, he starts scolding and berating his child in front of everybody because the child accidentally spilled a cup of water, right? Well, we would all see that and look at that and think, that was not the proper words for the occasion, right? His words did not fit the offense, right? He overreacted, right? His words did not match just what just happened. And so too, brethren, we want to know the situation as well. We want to be able to look out and say, is what I have to say to this person proper for the situation that's at hand, right? Am I about to come in with a heavy rebuke when all this person really needs is a little bit of exhortation and love and encouragement? We want to be thinking this way. Now listen, this doesn't mean that you can't, and brethren, at times when you should, you should bring, there's a hard word that might, be, that might need to be brought, but you need to think as it relates to the scripture and as it relates to other things in the Bible, that is usually a very rare occasion. The Bible doesn't say, be ready in season, out of season to always give a hard word. <laughs> it doesn't say that. And it tells you, you need to be kind and a tender-hearted person. Right? You need to be the kind of person who knows the situation, knows the kind of word that needs to be given. And very, and very often, it's a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation. It is not some harsh word. And so we want to be thinking in those ways as we think about our words. So lastly here, our deeds or our actions. So our last set of exhortations that I want to deal with is our deeds. So look at verse 28 with me because Paul is going to give one particular action here and then he's going to give us one more at the end. So look with me at verse 28 as it deals then with our deeds or our actions. Paul says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now listen, Paul here, he, he's using this example of a thief, right? And some of these Ephesians, no doubt, may have probably been thieves in their lives, stealing things. And so he, he's using this example of, of a thief to exhort the church then in honest labor for what? The benefit of others. But listen, don't come to this one here and don't think it touches us at all, right? Because I don't think what Paul's doing in giving this example is limiting his exhortation to only those who have stolen things physically in their past, right? Obviously, this commandment right here, this exhortation, covers more than just simply physically stealing things. The example of the thief being commanded to no longer steal, brethren, sets up principles that work for all Christians and, and, and principles that we all need to be instructed in. And the first is this, what is at the heart of stealing? What's at stealing's heart? Yes, I got the right word. All that other stuff was right too, but I got the word I wanted. Covetousness, right? To covet something. Or another way to think about it is to desire something, but it has the idea of to desire something wrongly. To desire something that doesn't belong to you, that's not yours, and that you want. So listen, brethren, listen. When we hear this exhortation then, the application and the point comes right home to us. We may not be stealing things physically, right? We may not be going taking money at our job. We may not be 
you know, taking uh, uh, some of our neighbor's things or, or doing any of those kind of physical activities. But brethren, if at the heart of stealing is a, is a heart of covetousness, then you can be sure that if you covet people's things, you desire people's things wrongly, then you really are a thief at heart. So it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it still comes right home to us. You can be a thief in heart if you covet and wrongly desire people's things. And so we can take this exhortation then and, and think, okay, yes, we may not go around stealing. We may not be going around committing physical theft. But we also want to be careful, brethren, that we are not going around stealing and thieving in our hearts. We, we want to be careful of that because, brethren, the heart that covets the blessings of others and it, and it seeks to acquire those things by any means necessary really makes you a thief at heart. And this sin is one that right here we are called to put away. We need to put away covetousness because it is the heart of the thief. It is the heart of stealing. And such people, as he says later on, brethren, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. This is the ultimate end of the covetous person. And this, brethren, could be our end if we're not quick to put this away. If we're not quick to put away covetousness. So notice the positive command then of how we are to engage then in labor, right? If we're to put that thing away, do not steal, right? Don't be a thief. What's the positive end of how we engage in labor? Well, this is what Paul says later on in this verse. Look there with me. He says, By doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So the question is, how do we put away covetousness and thievery? Well, you're to do honest work and labor so that you can be a benefit to others. That's, that's the exhortation. That's how you put that kind of thing away. So brother, this means... As we think about our jobs, our work, our labor, whether you go to a nine to five or whether you stay home with the kids or whatever you do, brethren, you need to think about your work and you need to think about it rightly. And so I want us to, to as we think about our work, then to, to, to think about it first here. Our goal in all of our labor is not ultimately just to receive money. Like our ultimate goal in working, brethren, yes, we have families to feed in here. We got food that we got to put on the table. You know, making money is good. Making money is right to accomplish those ends. But brethren, in your mind, your labor at the end of the day is not ultimately just to gain money. It shouldn't be our sole motivation in the Christian life, brethren. We should do honest work with our hands because we desire to do good to other people. We desire to be a benefit for them, right? This was the way of Christ. He, was, he didn't go around doing good just so he could go receive his throne. He went around doing good for the sake and benefit of other people. And brethren, so should you. This heart will actually help guard against coveting and, and laziness, right, in your life and wanting to, to, to go out and to seek things for yourself. So brethren, as we think about our work, I really want us to have that first and foremost in our mind. Your work, as Paul puts it here, it's for the benefit and the good of others. And doing that kind of thing will actually help you fight against coveting, fighting against the heart of the thief. So lastly then, we have our second deed that Paul gives us here in this section. And it comes right here at the end in verse 32. And brethren, this deed is interesting because this deed in verse 32 covers all the others. It covers thoughts, it covers words, 
and it covers the deed aspect. So look there at verse 32 with me. Paul says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So in this last exhortation then that Paul gives in this section, he lasers in on this great act of forgiving one another. And then what does he do? He grounds it in how God in Christ forgave you. And now I really want you to think about this one because I do think whatever structure is here in this section, Paul does end with this one for a particular reason. And it's because this, the act of forgiveness, the deed of forgiving somebody, by necessity, brethren, it, it combines all these different things. It combines our thoughts. It combines our words in order for us to perform this action. And so the act of forgiveness then is this great example of all these things coming together because by necessity, it requires us to have a heart that's right, our thoughts to be right, and for us to have the right words ready in our mouth. Brethren, it requires that all of this, our thoughts and our words and our deeds are all lining up together. If you guys see that. And yes, brethren, I know forgiveness entails thoughts. It, it, it entails your words. But ultimately, the act of forgiveness is one of an act. It is a deed that needs to be performed. And so for us to, to I think, brethren, to, to really understand the depth of this last exhortation as it relates to our deeds, I just want us to focus on one particular aspect of Paul's description of how we forgive. How are we supposed to do this great act of forgiveness? Well, the question you want to ask is, how did Christ forgive us? Right? Because that's the reasoning he gives behind it. Right? He tells us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So you want to ask, how did God in Christ forgive us? Brethren, I think that we can understand the depths of this forgiveness. If we can come to terms with how Christ did this for us, brethren, this will cause our imitating of God and walking in this to, I think, grow exponentially for us to grow and to grow in this great act of forgiveness. And so I would argue that the astonishing way that God forgave us in Christ is this. That God in Christ forgave you, brethren. That He forgave you fully and completely for all of your sins. And that He had full pardon of all your sins for all time ready for you as a gift to simply be received while you were still enemies. Do you guys hear that? The astonishing act of God forgiving you in Christ is this. God had already achieved full pardon, full and complete pardon for all of your sins, for all time, ready for you at the doorstep of your heart while you were an enemy. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Listen to it with that in your mind. Because this is what Paul says. Romans chapter 5, beginning here in verse 6, going to verse 8. Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But, oh, God's going to trump both of those things, right? You might die for a righteous person, maybe. Perhaps even a good person, maybe somebody might die for them. Oh, but brethren, God does even greater than that. He didn't just go die for a righteous person or even a good person. Here is who Christ came and died for to secure forgiveness and to have forgiveness fully and readily available. Listen to this last half. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brethren, do you hear that? This is the heart of Christ's forgiveness for us. Christ wrought and purchased forgiveness for us, and thus he had full and complete pardon of sin for you. Ready, completely ready, while you were still a sinner. The forgiveness was already ready to give. Christ already had forgiveness welling up in his heart, ready to issue forth for you while you were his enemy. This, brethren, is awesome in the truest sense. Christ had a heart where, like all the commandments we've already heard before in this section, Christ's heart, he did not let the sun go down on his anger, right? He entrusted himself to God. He did not give us, brethren, what we deserve. Nor did he come to offer us words of condemnation, but words of forgiveness. And brethren, Christ did not come into the earth to just seek his own gain. But what did he come to do? He came and he labored honestly with his hands for you. And he did honest work before his father. So that he could give full and complete and final forgiveness to you. And to have it standing ready for you as a gift to simply be received. That is what Christ did. That is how God in Christ forgave you. And so brethren, listen. How ought this then to inform how we live and then we forgive? Because it relates to all of the other things we've already heard. Should we heap up anger and bitterness? No. Brethren, we should store up forgiveness in our hearts like Christ did. He stored it up. Brethren, should we use our words then to devour, to injure, to bite, to attack? Brethren, the answer is no. We should use our words for what? To speak pardon, to speak healing, to speak forgiveness. Or brethren, should you work evil towards other people for the sake of your own gain? And brethren, obviously the answer is no. You should work for the sake of others because Christ worked for you. Christ came down and he worked honestly with his hands so that he could offer you full and complete pardon. Brother, just as Christ had forgiveness ready for you, so should you have forgiveness ready for others. You should have it ready to simply just hand somebody. You should have forgiveness ready in your heart. You should have it stored up there, ready to proclaim from your lips, full pardon to the person who comes and confesses their sin. Brethren, you ought, to, you ought to be eager to use your hands to do the work of reconciliation and, and to bring split parties together. Brethren, you ought to be ready for this great work because this is how you imitate God. That's what God in Christ did for you when he forgave you. And so brethren, you ought to imitate God in how he forgave 
you. So brethren, as we think about all this, as we come full circle, we come now to that central commandment there at the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. Brethren, the Lord has instructed us in this great commandment. And Paul has shown us how we can carry out this commandment then. Our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We can imitate God and walk in His ways. And brethren, ultimately, that it would be acceptable worship before God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So brethren, listen to that exhortation to you again. And and let it encourage you towards this end. So as beloved children... Beloved children, be imitators of God and walk in love and thought and word and in deed. Let's pray.